Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. Well, a very special episode of Speakeasy today. We're just going to talk to ourselves. (laughs) Hello, Annie. How are you? Hi, Carla. I'm good. It's kind of really weird being on the opposite side of the interviewee, interviewer. Yeah. Today. You're in the hot seat today. I know. It's somewhat more nerve-wracking, actually. I now feel sorry for our guests. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll, promise to be gentle. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, You know, you and I have talked a number of times about this, about, you know, opening up the the black box that is a PhD experience and and having some um, look at what is the sausage-making process (laughs) and... um, you know, it's, yeah, it's a great thing to do, but we, we've got a stimulus this time because you have just had your first first authored paper published from your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been somewhat of a journey, but it's really great to have it published. Um, and it's it's a whopper. It is. In terms of length. <laughs> 8,000 words or something. Yeah, I know. But it's, you know, it's scintillating reading. Oh, of course, <laughs> all the way through. But it is such a, you know, it's a really big topic as well, you know, and, um, you know, I kind of always knew even embarking on this piece um, and I guess we'll get into specifically yeah. what it's about, um, but it's, you know, in essence around um, issues around legitimacy and drug user representation in in this case for this particular paper in the uh, environment of the United Nations and Commission on Narcotic yeah. Drugs. And so yeah. before we get before we get into it, right, mm. I, I do want to say not just congratulations for getting it done, but congratulations mm. for getting it done. Big paper, as we said, but in a Q1 journal, which, yeah. you know, for all those academic nerds out there, <laughs> it's a big thing. It's a yeah, quarter right. one journal. It's what all the universities are wanting us to do is right. to not just publish, but publish in quality journals, those that are ranked highest in their fields. Yeah. And that's what you've done in yeah. International Journal of Drug Policy. So pretty bloody awesome. Yeah, look, it, do, it does feel good. But, you know, I guess for people out there doing this as well, you know, and and everyone comes to their PhD in different ways, right? Their journey yeah. to, to get to that point can be all different pathways. Um, but, you know, I haven't spent my sort of years of, of my career so far, particularly in that kind of academic space. So all of these things like Q1 Journal and all, it's all been a learning. I know, I completely know. And so some of this stuff, I guess, just for others on the journey who might be sort of just starting out, you know, it is completely normal, I've realised, not to know a lot of this stuff. And some people know some things more than they know others and then others yeah. know some other things, more, you know, but nobody knows it all and there no. really isn't stupid questions and, you know, but, I mean, I'm fortunate and I'm not just saying this because Carla's one of them, but I have really great supervisors and I, going into this, 
uh, people really said to me how important that was, you know, yeah. and I I kind of knew it, you know, based on my sort of uh, life, you know, my career and my, you know, working and stuff, but not in this particular context. So I took it seriously, but I now really do realise just how important it is to be able to have those honest conversations, you know, and yeah. really reflect stuff. And so, yes, you know, thank you for congratulating me, but it is always about collaboration is the other yeah. thing. and. You know, I do have um, yourself and Kari Lancaster and Alison Ritter as as co-authors on this paper and, you know, I couldn't have done it without all of your support as well. Okay, that's good. <laughs> the, the other thing to say is, you know, if, uh, these things aren't static about what matters, you know, and um, as a veteran <laughs> <laughs> of the academic world, you know, <laughs> I was just thinking this morning um, the worst moment of my PhD career was when my entire floppy disk system oh, crashed no. upgrading from WordPerfect 5 ah. to WordPerfect 5.5. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, uh, in them dim days, yeah. the concept of a Q1 journal didn't exist. Yes. And then a couple of years ago, there was a wholly different yeah. structure yeah. of grading or or yeah. Um, yeah. assessing yeah. quality of journals. So and now we've know, got the cloud and yeah. <laughs> everything's somewhere else. We're not even really sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've still got those floppy disks. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> that at least with floppy disks, you know, you actually have them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, yeah. it, it is something that. This, yeah, this academic right. world, although it seems to move at glacial pace, things do change. And, yeah. and you know, it's great to have a supervisory team with, with younger people yeah. you know, in yeah. terms of academic career yeah. like Kari yeah. who's who's come through a PhD yeah. with the same similar pressures as, yeah. as, you know, yourself and other current students. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I agree. It's yeah. been really, really valuable. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the collaboration comment is a really genuine one because it's, it's yeah. something that you don't, I think is a real mainstay of academic life, but it's, and it is out in other areas of working mm. life, but it's, you realise it has a particular kind of take in the academic context and it's very important and I'm, yeah. I'm learning that, which is great. Okay, let's jump in to this paper and um, we'll put the link up so people can read along, <laughs> but just tell us what's the title? Okay, so the title is um, making. <coughs> excuse me. The title is making legitimacy drug user representation in high level, or in fact, in UN drug policy settings. This one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know we can unpack each of those things about legitimacy, making of legitimacy, drug user. What does that mean? Representation. What does that mean? And and that high level drug policy settings. So before we get into the detail, why what why did you want to do this? What's your driver? Yeah. So look, um, yeah, it's a good question, really. I I mean, this is part of my uh, broader PhD research, as we've sort mm-hmm. of touched on. Um, but it, you know, obviously, it's a paper that stands in its own right as well. And um, you know. It's really interesting because that concept of nothing about us without us sort of thing Mm -hmm. has become really sort of pretty familiar, I think, to a lot of people, certainly in the drug policy space. Um, But, you know, it's sort of, and even in recent years, 
you know, there's all these kind of increasing calls for people who use drugs or representatives of people who use drugs to, you know, have greater involvement in particularly high-level policy settings. And the UN itself has been part of calling for all of that, in fact, in recent documents. But I guess one of the things that I thought about around these kinds of concepts is that, you know, we're already, or drug user representatives are already in these spaces and, in fact, Mm. been in these spaces for decades. So, you know, and I know that because I've been one of those people. I've done that work. You know, Mm. I know I was there and I know other people were there. And so, you know, it kind of sort of says to me, you know, what what are these calls for greater representation about? You know, sometimes more can just mean more, but I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean better. So it really sort of made me think about what's going on in these environments and I noted that there was very little written about this work yeah. that has been done and has been being done for a long time. And I thought that in itself was kind of interesting. And there certainly is very little kind of critical scholarship in that space. Yeah. around yeah. Specifically around drug user representation in these kind of high-level policy environments. So I'm not saying there isn't critical scholarship in other areas of drug policy or even some areas that touch on like consumer participation and those kinds of things. But this specific area where, as I say, I, you know, had been involved personally and with my colleagues for a long time, there just seemed to be very little on it. But when you're in that work and doing it, you never Mm. get the luxury of Mm. stopping and thinking really deeply about this situation and what is it, how is it made up and what happens in there and what are the issues. Because I'm very interested as well in issues of like power and knowledge and legitimacy, those kinds of things. I mean, my work is theoretically informed and it's informed by some of those concepts and theories that you know, are deeply engaged in those kinds of concepts. So, um, yeah, you know, that's kind of the background, I guess. Yeah, yeah right. And in, in our episode for International Drug Users Day with Jake Agliata, he he um, painted a really nice picture of what could happen at these UN meetings of mm. some of the sidelining of drug user represent, representatives um, <laughs> being forced literally into the hallway to meet can you can you paint us a picture because you said you've been there yeah Yeah. what what, before we get into your scholarship what was your kind of experience of Mm. turning up yeah look it's a really how did you get there i know how did you get to the un (laughs) who opens the door for that yeah well this in itself is a very interesting issue and it is one that we engage with in the paper as well but this you know there's very few ways to get into the un it's not a kind of place where you just walk in (laughs) into whatever meeting you want to go to right so there's really only kind of two major ways to get in there one you're either on a government member state delegation so for uh-huh. your government um, and being part of their delegation or you go through what's called an ECOSOC status uh, non-government organisation and ECOSOC is a kind of registration or accreditation if you like for non-government agencies and um, they get a certain number of passes to UN meetings right. but you know, it's not like being on a government delegation. You don't get access to all of the spaces. You're in a 
very uh-huh. different kind of status, right? Um, so, and more recently, thing. I mean, it's not fair to say the UN doesn't change. You know, it does change actually, and you know there has been a lot of effort put in by a lot of civil society, sort of NGO, civil society sector organisations over the last decade, in particular, to try and prise open these these UN spaces and Commission on Narcotic Drug Spaces a bit, um, but. Really, the first ways I got to go to the UN were, in fact, not through drug policy directly, but when I was CEO of AVIL, I became part of the HIV UNGAS, so the UN General Assembly Special Session on HIV. And that went on for like a 10-year period. So I ended up going a couple of times and at least... uh, Three of those times was part of Australian government delegations. Right. And they were with all different flavours of government, it needs to be said. And so mm-hmm. they always have a politician with them. So one of them was Kevin Rudd and another one was Kay Hull and another one was Louise Pratt. So all very different. You, you travelled with Kay Rudd. <laughs> Kay Rudd, yeah, I did. I did travel with Kay Rudd, definitely. That was an interesting experience at the UN uh, for the week. And uh, being that on. That wasn't the Hooters trip, was it? No, it was not the Hooters trip, thank God. No, it was, but we were, you know, on his Twitter feed and all of that. Oh, yeah. Wow. It was, uh, it was interesting, but, you know, like it. Uh, It was a really eye-opening experience and Jake spoke to this as well. But you think you're going to this really amazing thing. Yeah. And it kind of is because there's nothing else like it in the world. You know, it brings all the countries of the world together and, you know, has done some really amazing things and stands for some really amazing things. But when you're in it as an individual you kind of realise just your tininess in, in all of it and how little what you have to say really matters. And that, as Jake said, so much gets decided before you're even mm. there that those big meetings are often more symbolic. Mm. They're kind of to launch something that's already been decided in the months prior, things like that. So where I've had more meaningful UN involvement actually has been through like uh, the UN ODC Office of Drugs and Crime or UN AIDS, the HIV AIDS mm-hmm. section, um, going to meetings, the stigma meeting that I went to in January at the UN, those yeah. kinds of things that are a bit more of a smaller group of hats, sort of, you know, selected people, but you actually get to like have input into a, doc- a UN document that then goes on to a bigger, pro- you know, that sort of thing. That's where I found it's a little better but, you know, those big processes, it's all about what's on show, really, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm. So for this paper, what was the, the question or questions you were wanting to explore and how did you get and what was the data you were looking at? How did you yeah. get into yeah. it? Yeah. So, look, um, so this is a data-driven piece. Um, it's based on a, but it's not based on interviews. Um, that's mm-hmm. sort of coming later in my PhD. So mm-hmm. I have done interviews with participants. That's a nice teaser. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, both in uh, both in the UN environment, but also outside of that, in lots in Australia and elsewhere. So, so that's sort of something separate. But this was really started out actually as a bit of a just a mapping process. You yeah. know, it was my first kind of dip my toes in the water when I started my PhD to kind of start looking at drug user representation in high level um, policy environments and to get a bit of a lay of the land. 
And so I looked at that in two different contexts, one of them being the UN. So I didn't have a really clear set sort of this is, you know, I'm driving to answer this question. It was sort of a what's what's going on in, in this space. Um, and I was really thinking that at the very least it would inform my interview schedule, you know, yeah. the questions I might ask people, who I might interview, you know, what I might focus on later. But actually once I got into it, so we – we did a, a desk-based review, um, you know, the UN, it's like when you're talking about drug policy in the UN, it's like this massive thing, you know, that goes over decades of meetings. I mean, you mm. kind of can't really look at it all and you wouldn't be able to look at it all because you're kind of relying on publicly available information in this space, um, you know, and the UN is notoriously secretive in, in that regard. You know, I'm not the only person to say that. It's on the record. So... What um, I ended up doing was sort of focusing in on what are referred to as the UNGAS on drugs, and that's the UN General Assembly Special Sessions on Drug Policy, and they really are the kind of primary space where global drug policy is deliberated and set. So you've got the conventions, but these UNGAS on drugs, they only come up every now and then. So there's only been three in the last 30 years in 1998 and 2016, the more recent one. So at those those big unguesses, that's sort of where, you know, the kind of policy implementation documents to go with the conventions get kind of, you know, endorsed and uh, thrashed out behind the scenes. And so they logically appeared as a good place to, to look as a basis. And then next to that, um, I looked at any associated meetings. So things like uh, anything that was a preparatory meeting or anything that was a follow-up meeting to an UNGAS on drugs, yeah? So yeah. that meant a lot of us, mostly Commission on Narcotic Drugs, high-level meetings, reviews, you know, summits, those sorts of things. There was one UN conference and one civil society forum, but the rest was all C&D. So basically what I ended up with was about 15 of these sort of policy events and um from those events, I did a, a an internet sort of search, really, to just find all the publicly available information I could find on those, yeah. those 15 processes. And my aim with doing that, you know, I was looking for participant lists and speeches and excerpts and speeches and, you know, what was said, who said what, you know, what was done, what was it about, just trying to get the dates, you know, just nail everything down. And so that gave me a time frame of about 30 years, as I mm. say, 15 events. And then I started really drilling into those documents. So the next stage was to look at each of those 15 policy processes and see whether there was any positive evidence of drug user representation, whether there was any evidence that drug user representation wasn't there, or whether there was no evidence either way about that. So when you, when you say positive evidence, meaning that there was there drug was. user evidence, there not was. that it was a positive event for any no. particular stakeholder. That's right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So it was about positive evidence of drug user representation, lack mm-hmm. evidence that there was none, and then yeah. a lack of evidence. Um, and so that got it in the end, once looking at all the documents, there was about, uh, there was nine, nine of the 15 events had positive evidence of drug user representation. Yeah. And there was uh, the remaining six. Basically, there was not sufficient information to decide whether there was any representation either way. So they were 
you know, no evidence either way. So then taking the nine, and, yeah. And those nine, then they're not standard things, are they? They they might be reports of different formats or um, uh, copies of speeches. Like it's a, yeah. it's a whole lot of different stuff. It's huge. It's ended up being a massive database of um, so the 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 nine um, that had positive evidence, they were all like what you would call. I'm calling them processes, but perhaps for people who are sort of not immersed in this stuff, thinking of them as events. Yeah, so right. they were either an ungas themselves. So the yeah. 2016 ungas was one of them. There was definite drug user representation there. The very first ungas uh, didn't have any, but the second one in 98 was the first time there was any evidence of drug user representation. So there was that. And then the rest of them were like C&D meetings that were high-level meetings that were kind of feeding into those processes, but they all had evidence of drug user representation. What I used as the evidence, as you're asking me, were really many and varied sort of sources for that and Mm -hmm. it was really you know a lot of work to kind of go through all of that and pull out the excerpts where drug users were speaking up and you know presenting and representing and what were they saying how were they saying it and I guess that sort of brings me to sort of how the sort of final part of how I did this, which was we mobilized a, a kind of a framework that's been used in other areas of um, sort of participation in public policy issues, I guess. And it it's sort of based on this subject-object form type framework. And so I sort of looked at, you know, at each of these nine events, the subject, you know, what, what, who were the drug user representatives who were there? What was the subjectivities, you know, the, the subject positions, if you like, yeah. that were available to them in that space? How were they being described? How were they describing themselves, you know, that sort of thing? Yeah. Who was there? Then the object is more about kind of what was being talked about, what was being said, um, how were people bringing their voices to bear? in the the drug user representatives bringing their voices to bear. And then the forms were more looking at some of those sort of background processes, I guess, that are often sort of taken for granted a bit, you know, is just the way things are done in the UN or whatever. But they're like the mechanisms, how you get in the door, how do you, you know, looking at how did people manage, as you asked me, how did you get to be there? So I was looking at how did people get to be there? Were they on a government delegation? Were they under the guise of another organisation that had nothing to do with drug user representation? But I only knew that they were a drug user representative because they spoke up and said that they were, you know, those sorts of things. So looking at that or also looking at the kinds of spaces that drug user representatives got to speak in as well because they were very limited too. So so I did this kind of subject-object forms analysis and that really... uh, gave me the the sort of the data, if you like, to analyse um, about what's been going on. Yeah. So can you give us a, an example of the, of you just mentioned some of the forms, but you know, some of the subjects and objects, the, yeah. the who and the what and the how? Um, it was really interesting. The subject um, category, if you like, I mean, when you go through the documentation, there's actually like this plethora of kind of names to describe people who use drugs or drug user, right. potentially drug user representatives. But actually when you really look at those, they kind of break down into these two fairly big categories of ex-users and users in recovery 
and people who identify as current users, you know, mostly right. associated with input and its its regional networks and, and organisations. Yeah. But I guess, you know, beyond that, what really was really interesting for me to look at as someone who's been doing this work for a long time, and it goes to that issue of, you know, what is drug user representation anyway? Because one of the things that it, it got me thinking about was, what are my own assumptions am I bringing into this? Who do I think drug user representatives are? And I had to really kind of check myself a bit, you know, because I was thinking, well, who am I to say that Mm. drug user representatives are only current drug users, you know, that are representing input or whatever? You know, actually, you know, people describe themselves, you know, and, uh, particularly when they're doing this kind of representation in highly formal, very politicised environments, may be forced to, to say they are a person in recovery for yeah. their own safety. But you wouldn't otherwise know, you know, but they, they may not, you know, they may be a current user <laughs> for all yeah. intents and purposes, you know, but the documentation doesn't necessarily tell you that. And so it really forced me to sort of think through the complexity of how these subjectivities are kind of, you know, organized and how people um identify and speak and speak about themselves um and what do we think we're talking about when we say drugs are representation you know was it not just how people talk about themselves but it was was it also through the filter of someone if it wasn't a you know verbatim transcript of a speech was it also um the writer of a report or the writer of a summary or the writer of a blog who's who's layering on those categories or interpretations as well? Exactly. Absolutely. It was both, you know, cutting both ways. And, you know, I I did, um, you know, spend uh, probably a majority of time looking at sort of uh, how drug users were talking about themselves because it's a sort of an area that hasn't been looked at, you know, very Mm -hmm. much. But you're right, there were... Certainly, particularly where there were gaps in the documentation and sometimes the only thing available, there was no excerpt of a speech, you know, from the first presentation or, or representation from a, a person who uses drugs back in 1998. That speech yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. But we know it happened because other people speak about it. And the way yeah. they speak about it, and you're absolutely right, you know, often is how they characterise the person. So we've yeah. got this first person uh, back in 98, being described in various different ways, the very same person being vi- described as an ex-user, a dr- and, you know, an ex-drug addict, a person in recovery, a consumer, a person who uses drugs, yeah, right. all by different people in different documents, you know. So, and what's interesting about that, it goes to the issue of legitimacy, which is at the heart of this paper, is that it's around those kinds of things that you can start to see whether someone's voice is taken seriously or not uh-huh. and, you know, depending on, you know, who they're thought to be and how they speak about themselves and how they're spoken about. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, part of the subject analysis in this. Yeah. Um, and what about the objects? Yeah, um, the objects. The objects is, as I mentioned before, is more about kind of what's being said and the ways in which the practices, I guess, I focused in on that representatives of people who use and have used drugs have been using to sort of bring their voices to bear in this very formal environment. Mm. Um, and 
what I sort of identified was that there were sort of two major ways really that that was happening. So people were often talking about a variety of different um, objects or topics or whatever. So they might be talking about concepts of addiction or concepts of uh, gender or concepts of citizenship or whatever it might be, human rights. But they tended to fall into the category of using a kind of lived experience type narrative. So people talking about their personal drug use and what that's meant for them and their lives. And that often was used in the documentation by people who identified as being in recovery. And often that would pretty much reinforce the kind of dominant drug policy discourse in the UN, the war on drugs, the prohibition, recovery is good. If you're not in recovery, you know, you need to be sort of getting on the road to recovery, all that sort of stuff, because that's a good moral and legitimate place to be. Um, But when we look at sort of some of the representatives from, say, Imput and the regional networks associated with Imput, They do use some sort of lived experience or personal narratives, but they're far more critical about the role of drug policy in forming those narratives, if you like. And Uh they focus far more on a sort of human rights-based discourse than a purely lived experience-type discourse. So criticising the policy discourses and structures that are and what needs to change and sort of coming from a more disruptive and resistant, you know, a site of resistance, I guess, is one way of putting it. So there was these kind of different things going on in how the representations were happening and what, what, how they were bringing their voices to bear in those environments. Mm. So what, you know, you've been in these spaces mm. and, you know, hobnobbing it with um, <laughs> senior politicians and other mm. others of, of renown. Mm. What surprised you in these data? What surprised me? You know, I think um, I, was, I was surprised by um, at times the kind of ways that people who use drugs were spoken about, um, you know, very, very dehumanising and very, you know, we know this stuff, you know, you do, we, we know it and we talk about it often and it's been talked about a lot in, in a lot of work. But, you know, it, that stuff never ceases to surprise me, I guess, yeah. about just sort of, you know, how dehumanising this can be. And, and just sort of one example is um, a... Uh, where a person who was from Central and Eastern Europe, um, a female drug user representative, uh, stood up and was give, gave a very powerful speech uh, from the perspective of women drug users in a really difficult environment. And following the speech, she was pretty um, roundly taken to task by uh, a delegate from a particular country for calling herself and her peers people. What? Yeah, and that, um, and it really showed the strength. Yeah, so that, and and the, the delegate referred to the fact that the, in their view, the UN conventions don't talk about people who use drugs. You know, they talk about drug addicts and this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so 
this person was not going to sort of recognise her call for people who use drugs to be treated as people and as human beings with human rights because that wasn't consistent with, you know, UN um, drug policy discourses. So I guess that example just really sort of highlights the power of these words, you know, to shape people's perceptions um, of of who people are, you know, and what it's possible for them to be in these environments. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, you um, know, that was surprising, but the, on a positive side, uh, yeah. another thing that was really surprising was just the richness of the data as well. Like that was really nice, you know. You say it's a, you know, it's a, an, a bit of an epic paper, but um, there was just, you know, a lot um a lot to sort of take in, look at, analyse um, and work with. And, you know, there was so much more than what's included in the paper and there is, you know, much more that could be said about that environment and, and um, you know, various ways of sort of looking at other issues in that space. So, um, you know, that was that was nice. It, it was surprising and, and amazing to see the bravery of some of the people that speak uh-huh. in these environments as well, you know, and the passion with which they uh, yeah. bring these representations, often from really difficult spaces, people who are living in countries with, you know, extrajudicial killings and, um, you know, death penalties and, um, you know, camps that are, you know, um, detaining people, etc. And they're still standing up in the UN, despite knowing that they're going to be getting grief when they get home from their governments back in their home country, stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, Amazing. yeah, mm. it's really nice to sort of just, um, you know, ha- be looking at this data and just sort of looking at the kind of passion and commitment that people bring to their work. Yeah. And in, in this chat, you know, we've only been able to scratch the surface of the incredible detail and um, analytic depth you've gone into, Annie. So, you know, listeners, do yourself a favour <laughs> and go and check it out. So we'll drop the link. Do we have 50 days free access on yeah, this we paper? we do, absolutely, okay. which is really great. So, um, yeah. yeah, thanks to the journal thank for you. that. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it's really yeah, great. Thank you, IJDP. That's Particularly great. Um, on this topic and it's great for the community um, you know, of drug user representatives to be able to get access over this time. Yeah, awesome. So, um, you know, that's done. The mm. academic um, mm-hmm. uh, rat, uh, what's you know, rat wheel yeah. continues. <laughs> Isn't that an uplifting yeah, metaphor for today? Nice. So, what's what's next? What's yeah. on your plate at the moment? Okay, so um, you know, I'm sort of pretty much hot-footing it into the last year of my PhD, which is kind mm, of scary and exhilarating and precious. <laughs> That's right. So, but, you know, I've, um, I mentioned earlier that I've done a bunch of participant interviews, so I've, I have uh, completed those and I'm coding those now. And they're with, you know, really sort of once again, rich and amazing group of uh, stakeholders from within Australia, so drug mm-hmm. user representatives within Australia and other stakeholders like policy stakeholders, so policy uh, makers, parliamentarians, um, a few researchers, but mostly policy people, bureaucrats, all that kind of thing, and then sort of the equivalents, if you like, at the global level. So some of those 
so drug user representatives at the global level and from all across the world in lots of different contexts, but also um, some people who've been involved policy, other policy stakeholders who've been involved in the UN, but others have been involved more at their country level. So, you mm-hmm. know, really getting a sort of a bit of a rich um uh, uh, you know, sample there of of different people and just talking to them about, yeah, experiences of working with drug user representatives and being a drug user representative and just all of the sort of challenges and joys associated with that, with doing that work. And are you taking those some, same ideas about legitimacy and power into that analysis? Yes, yeah, so definitely sort of looking at key issues around um, continuing the theme around legitimacy, but certainly looking more in depth at issues of power, issues of representation, drilling more into this idea of what are we talking about when we're talking about drug user representation and and drug user representatives, um, and also looking at some issues around just um, I guess what I'd call emotional labour, you know, what's going on with doing this kind of work, the toll it can take on people and the risks involved as well as the benefits, yeah. Well, you know, I get a sneak peek before the rest of the world (laughs) and I'm so looking forward to the next stage of analysis of those interview data. Um, And, you know, I hope people enjoyed this opportunity to you know, have this commentary from the author. It's like, you know, at the end of the old DVDs when you have the director's edit or director's commentary or something like that. You know, (laughs) rates with something like that. But, look, yeah, absolutely. I just really um, encourage people to, yeah, to take a look because it is a sort of area that hasn't been well investigated and I think, um, you know, uh, you know, I when you engage in work that is quite theoretically informed, you know, you sort of, can often wonder, you know, how much will people engage with that or whatever. But, yeah. you know, I think this is is why this, these sorts of theories are really interesting to me is because they really do encourage you to think deeply about these yeah. things. And yeah. not that other work that isn't sort of, you know, more descriptive, whatever, isn't great as well, but I just really enjoy the challenge of thinking deeply about this. And I think because of the nature of these issues, they really need that kind of treatment and uh, to encourage us all to, you know, think about our role in these kinds of relationships and, and work. Well, thank you, Annie. I hope that was good for you because I think that was fascinating talk through really complex stuff that, as you say, is underdone at the moment and really needs some sophisticated thinking, which you are bringing to it. So well done. And if anyone wants to contact me and ask questions and have a conversation, please feel free to do so. Always great. All right, let's sign out for this recording and we'll be back at another time. For more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, head to httpcsrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.